episode of Everything You Need Is Inside. I am so excited to welcome uh, my my mentor and teacher and friend, Christina Allen, who has been probably the most impactful human on my <laughs> journey thus far in the past two plus years. And I don't know how I could ever thank you enough for standing in that space for me and holding space for me and teaching me and guiding me and also... Um, holding space for friends through their experiences. So thank you. You're welcome. But when I asked Christina how she would introduce herself, particularly at a cocktail party, if you're at a cocktail party, your answer is? I probably wouldn't go around introducing myself. Why? Why be- not? Because I tend to be a little on the introverted side. Yeah. I am not a big hello, here I am person. Right. And if you were to say, like, I'm a shaman, people would say, like, huh? Oh, gosh, that word is so loaded. I don't ever say I'm a shaman. I think it's an interesting word. Even now when I speak of you, uh, I I think I call you a healer and I call you a shaman. And I also sometimes preface it like, I know this sounds weird, but she's my shaman. (laughs) So I can imagine how it feels to say it as the shaman. Yeah, and it's considered an honorific. It's not considered something you claim as your own. Okay. So you saying I'm a shaman works, but for me to go like, I'm a shaman in a lot of circles is um, a little, you know, egoic and boastful. I don't not do it because of that, but just I don't need I don't need that label. Right. I just show up and do my work. Yeah. And because there's so much you know, dissonance about that word. Some people say you can't use it. Some people say it means only a specific thing. You know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of, you know, controversy about that word. It's very loaded. So I, for the most part, avoid it. However, I did name my company Aston Shamanic Center. So I get, you know, I get kind of caught in that. But um, the reason I did is because you need some word that our culture doesn't have Mm -hmm. to talk about healing where you're going into another space, where you're going, you're helping somebody heal from from the subconscious, from and working with, with at more of a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. And it's not just psychic healing. So it doesn't, that doesn't really fit. It comes from these shamanic traditions. And so, um, so that's. Christina is the founder, creator of Austin Shamanic Center. And I like that you mentioned that. That's important because you did. <laughs> you did call your company that. I did. Um, for better or for worse. Right? And it's also <laughs> such a bold name, I would say. And um, I don't actually know that you can even put words around the work that you do. It has impacted my life so intensely um, in every which way. And as I've come to know you more, you know, I've seen why I've been so drawn to you and there being so many interesting parallels in your journey and mine and um, your background in yoga and owning studios in California and um, your own history. And I think because you've walked the path of healing yourself it's given you the opportunity to really hold space for people in their own journey. And I think that's my like number one high praise for you of like always showing up relatable because I know that in my work and, you know, even just in common conversation, like people want to be seen, they want to be heard. And if you've done that work yourself, you um, create that space where like there is no separation. So thank you for doing that. 
You're welcome. I sort of was forced to, but you know, to heal, right? right? And I think that to hold space for somebody, you have to have experienced mm -hmm. that. So I don't recommend you go out and you know just create trauma for yourself. But I think that is sort of the you know the gift that I get from having had a pretty traumatic childhood, is that um, I can go into some pretty dark places and hold somebody without feeling discomfort. I can you know hold emotional dysregulation. I can hold all kinds of spaces where people normally can't. I thought, I actually thought that, you, you know, that everyone could hold those spaces until mm -hmm. I would reach out to other people and they're like, oh, have you taken your medication? Um, <laughs> Which one? <laughs> I'm like, oh, never mind. I'll work this out. I remember at some point in my path with you, I was uh, on your table, which we'll talk about the work that you do. And at some point I was like, I'm a puffer fish because I used to think like, you know, to be big and be loud. And, and I think sort of a byproduct of trauma is that you sometimes take on this role of being like big, loud scene when you've taught me like, you don't need to be big, loud and seen. You just already are that energy. And um, given that it was, that was being fed by you, you know, you're a petite woman, but the space that you hold is so incredibly vast like not in this realm or only in this realm and learning from you by the work that we've done together. And also just by being your student, it's become so clear that that's the truth, that to really like stand in your space and hold um, your boundaries and be grounded. It has nothing to do with what you look like. It's really mm -mm. just energetics. Yeah, it is. And you're in just your confidence because you've been through so much. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting premises of shamanic um, healing is, or shamanic learning, training to be a shaman, is your truths are experiential. Mm. It's not something you read out of a book. People are always asking me, well, what book can I read? And like, you can read any book you want to about shamanism, but it's going through the fire mm. that teaches you what it is, that teaches you how to heal, that teaches you how to hold that space, how to get out of that space, how to get out of those dark places. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that I learned by doing you know, mm -hmm. someone can tell me a million times not to or to, and it's similar to like, I learned to cook by cooking. It wasn't culinary school. Like I learned to run a business by running a business. Like as you both, we both know running studios or even practicing yoga or teaching yoga, you, you learn to teach by teaching. Yeah. So, yeah. um, it's interesting. And again, like with the word shamanism, you know, it, it does hold both, you know, it's a double entendre because it could be seen as oh, like shamanism in this day and age of this new age spirituality. But when it's really used in a proper setting or in the word, like whatever it means, I just know that like in my experience working with you, you've taken me to other planets <laughs> just through breath, just through energetics moving through the body. And even in learning from you in the courses I've taken with you, you know, I would spend hours doing the work with you and then leave and be so energetically depleted because it took so much energy to um to use the energy and to honor that energy and to hold space and I think that just speaks to the process of healing as a whole it's it's not for the faint of heart it's not no so I know that we've done um if you haven't heard my original podcast with Christina, we filmed or we recorded last August, I believe. Don't know. And I, I believe so much has changed and shifted since then. And we really went deep into your background. And um, with that, if you could just speak to how you got here, 
How did you, I mean, you didn't read a book, so, I mean, you probably read <laughs> I did read books. books. Yeah, but how did you become this person who holds expansive space and, and really heals? What did that look like? Cliff notes. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think it, it comes from, from trauma. Mm. I think the earliest major trauma that I had, I think I had, um, you know, like birth trauma, and I had another trauma as a baby. Both of those have popped for me. Um, as an adult, but um, I had this repressed memory of what, something that happened to me when I was four when I had my grandmother broke my collarbone and put me in my room all night and pretended in the morning like I had fallen out of bed and broken it. And so there is a kid, a four-year-old kid, who spent an entire night in a room in pain, not feeling safe because my grandmother was taking care of me. My parents were out of town. And so there were no caretakers that, were, that I could turn to for solace, no caretakers I could turn to for help. And I think I, I developed some sense of that room as a place, as a safe place, mm -hmm. as a place that I almost take people, as a as a you know a part of my interior construct. So, in hindsight, what I think I do is I hold this dark room mm -hmm. that I I know how to hold that room. I held that room, and um, and just. I think the other thing that happens when you have a trauma like that is you dissociate, you go out of your body, and so it start, you start to explore the realms outside of the physicality. You start to be able to explore that bigger space, that space that's bigger than just your personality. Mm -hmm. And actually your personality and your body and your ego are not that fun to be in because they're the one, it's the one that's processing the pain and putting it all together. So there's this sense of being able to hold this space that's way out here. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I could really hold that. I knew I was um, called to be a healer for a long time. And I finally, in my 40s, went to shaman school. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's where I really learned how to hone the already kind of implicit pieces that I had and turn them into a skill set. So interesting. And I know that from an early age, though, not four, but at some point in your teens, like kind of wanted to explore this world. How did that, that just showed up for you? And you kind of like, you didn't know how to get there. What did that look like? Yeah, I had another trauma at 15 where my dad attacked me. And um, it was really scary because I'm a little person and he was a big guy. And he was enraged. He, he was out of his mind. It, wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with me, but I was the person there that he took it out on. Um, and that was about the same time that I was getting into psychedelics. I was going to Grateful Dead concerts. I lived in California, and I was, um, I was having these experiences with um, altered states and realizing that when I went into these altered states, which probably wasn't that different than the dissociation state on some level, but I didn't make the connection yet, um, I was. Uh, I felt better. I felt more integrated. I felt more whole. And um, then I started. And, and I started going. Okay, what is reality? Because because my grandmother told me that I had fallen out of bed and I had hurt myself and put it all on me and lied to my parents and told them that, I struggled with what reality was, mm -hmm. because I was living a lie. And I didn't know how to say I was living a lie. I, didn't, I just repressed the whole thing. It was too complicated. And, and so I was looking for truth. I had this really strong mission, like, what is truth? And when I would go on these psychedelics, I would have this sense of, oh, this is reality. This is the real reality. You can see the fabric of reality. You know, there's, there's information in the, you know, the curly cues of, of space and all that kind of thing. So I thought, okay. How do I work with this? This is my strong suit. This is where I feel most at home. And I read a lot of books 
because that's all I had. You know, yeah. I was some some young chick in the in the suburbs, in the white suburbs, mm-hmm. and. Um, I read a lot of the Carlos Castaneda books, which were about shamanism, um, shamanism in Mexico. And I was like, that's it. Because he was doing a lot of psychedelics and having these, you know, these experiences and other worlds and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, that's what I, that's what I'm supposed to do. I can feel it in my bones. Mm. (laughs) But how are you going to get there? How are you going to get there from, you know, like some, some upper middle class high school in, in Sacramento, California to. Is that what. When yoga came in, was it like the next, I mean, because you're working with energy or through the body, it had nothing related to, like, was it the simplest connection or no? Like, I also know that you studied physics and science. So what was the, you were reading these books and then you wanted to work with energy. So what was your next thing? My next thing was I had to go to college because that's what you do when you're you're my parents' child. And so um, I went to college and I fumbled through lots of different majors. Psychology seemed like it might be a way to go, but it was too sort of linear and a lot of experiments on dogs. And <laughs> it was you have a really big dog. It's not really a dog. It's more like a bear. It's called Kuma. <laughs> yeah, so that wasn't going to work for me. I didn't have Kuma at that time, but, you know, I'd had dogs and cats. And, and I wasn't, you know, the psychology wasn't quite, I wasn't, it just feel, felt too contained for what where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really know what to do. I decided I'm gonna be a creative writing major. So I started doing that for a little while. Um, and just fumbled around in the humanities for a while. And then I, um, I used to work for my dad. My dad lived in Alaska. And I would go out into the the Brooks Range, into the, you know, the North, the, the um, Northern Circle and, and um, work and cook, be a cook's helper, run camps, run camps for, for geologists and mm-hmm. drillers and people looking for coal and that kind of thing up there. And I would just be the, the sole person if they're running these little camps. And I had these really big moments with the mountains up there, Denali in particular. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was watching these guys get flown around in helicopters and their summer was like living in these big tents and you know, like there were women and men and I thought, well, that's something I could do. I could go back to school because I had I had taken some time off from school because I just you know I bounced around and just finally went. I don't know what, <laughs> what to do. Right. So I was I spent the summer working in one of these camps. Had sort of this 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 real moment with nature where I felt like, yes, I like this. And then I loved riding around in the helicopters. That was pretty fun. Mm-hmm. And um, and I thought, well, I'll go back and be a geologist. That's what I'll do. And so I went back to school. Got back enrolled, started doing all the prereqs for um, for um, geology, and one of them was physics. And I had been reading all kinds of Eastern philosophy, the Tao, the you know, all about Taoism and things like that. And then while I was studying physics, I read this book called The Tao of Physics, and it started re- relating spirituality to the quantum field. Mm. And I was like, oh, the quantum field is the psychedelic field. And I started to go, oh, now we're starting to hone in on what it is that I think really is important in reality, what reality really is. And I thought, and I was doing okay in my physics classes. I was doing well. And I thought, no, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get my degree in physics because it's the most shamanic thing I can come up with. That makes sense. <laughs> right. That made sense. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I was never designed to be a physicist. <laughs> I mean, that would be fun. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't my my um, my place, but um, it was a great education, mm. 
and I did get I did get a lot of value out of learning to critically think, um, learn about quantum mechanics, learn about the nature of reality. All that kind of stuff is something I, I completely take with me still to this day. So I started with physics. Then I worked in the world of physics for a while, and I like, oh, I don't really like this. Mm. You know, it's all oscilloscopes and you know cement rooms, and you know, and I'm like, mm, computers, not really my thing. Not like feeling like there was an emotion attached to it. <laughs> not a lot, like no. So in that, you know, you mentioned this word dissociation versus the psychedelic world. So were you? present in that experience or were you dissociate? Like, was it just going through the motions or you were intrigued by what you were doing? When I was working in, in physics? Yeah, in labs. Um, it depends. I mean, I could, I could apply myself and do really well with my hands. Yeah. If I'm doing, I can focus right. and I could, I could do stuff. But I also felt overwhelmed. I had imposter syndrome, like I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah. Um, and so um, I just had this sense of, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. You know, this isn't me. And, and so I felt a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxiety. I love that you just mentioned that because I think that depression, anxiety, imposter syndrome, um, you know, ADHD, whatever you want to call it, the symptoms show up. Um, and so often they're just symptoms of like actually the what's disintegrated inside. So you weren't feeling like you were in the right space. Mm -hmm. Just that truth, that little voice that we all have. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's showing up as anxiety or imposter syndrome. So I think that such a big takeaway for people and a question I get often and I ask often is how do you learn to trust yourself? And for me, it's just like flexing that muscle over and over again of like saying yes when I mean yes and no when I mean no, holding the boundaries, which is something I had to learn. But um, otherwise it's me dissociating so I don't have to be where I am. And I think that takes you out of the trust. So I think we should probably talk to dissociation. What does dissociation mean for those that don't know? Well, it's a psychological term, which means um, you've separated, you've separated sort of into two states. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't actually, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know exactly how they would define it. Um, in, in my experience with people who I've worked with who've dissociated with, who've dissociated, I always find that they, their consciousness, who, how, they're, how they're perceiving reality is not embodied. Mm -hmm. It's outside their body. So it's like they're in, you know, like Major Tom, you know, ground control to Major Tom, here I am in a tin can, you know, like, <laughs> it's like they're circling their body, but they're not in their body. And so I'll ask them, I know somebody's dissociated because I'll say, you know, tell me about where, when this first happened, what do you feel? And they're like, I don't know, I don't really feel anything. Mm -hmm because they're not in their body. They can't feel it in their body. And so I go, okay, so first step is we got to get them back in their body. So that's how dissociation shows up for me in my work. In the, in the shamanic traditions, what we would say is that there was soul loss, mm -hmm. that a part of your soul actually was like, hey, I'm not going to stick around for the rest of the story and goes and go in, in the shamanic traditions, it actually goes into the underworld, into the mother, into the earth. And she holds that piece mm -hmm. until we do enough healing for that piece to come home. Yeah, I, I become almost emotional when you speak to that of like not feeling embodied. And, you know, it's something like if you don't know what that means, it's hard to understand it until you come back into your body. And I think part of, you know, this journey, really this idea of everything you need is inside. It really speaks to my journey of coming back home. And the only way I finally like came back home through your work and holding space, you know, immensely, but was honoring that I wasn't home, 
first you got to get to that place of like realizing that something's disconnected. And I know we've spoken at length, but like most people, as you just shared, didn't even know you had trauma because it's something you dissociated from, you separated from. I think it's so profound that you started to realize like at these dead shows or whatever you were doing when you were starting to play with psychedelics that like, oh, well, this realm is actually where I feel more connected. And as you say that for me, you know, I toy with microdosing once in a while. I've never taken an antidepressant. I probably needed to be on antidepressants many, <laughs> many times in my life. Um, but I also came from a family of like, you're good. Like, and because I didn't even know I was depressed. I was high achieving. I was attractive. Like, I was good, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> on the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, That's actually usually a sign of trauma. <laughs> right, right. Oh, exactly. Overachieving, perfectionism, yeah. hate yourself, but nobody knows that. Yeah. So you emphasize your beauty because you have to be, you're perfect. You have and, to fit in this box. Yes. And have the perfect veneer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but in my experience, both with using plant medicine and then, you know, just toying with microdosing, um, and in the work that I've done, I also realize the intensity of my sensitivity. So when I microdose, I take like an eighth of a capsule or whatever else. But I feel so much more connected to self, like to a, not another realm, but whatever this is, I'm here, you know, like to nature, to my body. But if I take too much, like I go on a full-blown plant medicine journey in the yoga class. And like I need to like, you know, it's a lot, you know, for the nervous system. But I think... My point being that, like, the dissociation was almost, like, where I lived my whole life. Like, I lived dissociated. So is that – I want to speak to your work. So I came to Christina two and a half years ago. I remember it was when I – before I moved to Austin. And I had uh, just experienced one of the most traumatic medicine journeys of my life. And it was only the third journey I'd ever done. So it was uh, three months into me remembering any sort of trauma in my life. And I did a plant medicine journey while I was living in New York City. And um, it was on New Year's Eve, 2020 to 2021. And it was, uh, I shook the whole time. My right leg was just, it was it was the ugliest journey I think I had at that moment. They were uglier. Um, but it put me into such a state of shock. Because after I was in this group of people and everyone was dancing and celebrating. And I was like, is it just me? Like uprooting this horrible uh, rape from my, you know, friend's stepfather was 13. Like it was really what took me out of my body and like started spinning at a very young age. And when you're a 13 year old girl, like becoming a woman, like nothing makes sense at this point. Like, and that really put me on a hard path. So I came and I reached out to you in the middle of COVID and you have such incredible boundaries that you're like, no, you can't come to see me in person. Like I'm only doing zoom. And I was like, why would I talk to someone on zoom when I'm in the same city as them? Like, and I wasn't having it. And so it wasn't our time. So fast forward, I think probably three months later when I moved here and I came for the first session or no, I was still seeing, I started seeing you on zoom cause it was still COVID. And within like the first or second session, the first session was incredibly emotional and I felt seen and heard by someone who wasn't a therapist talking about trauma and also not even talking the therapy that I experienced. It was me talking. Um, but then with you is I was like heard. And I was heard by someone who understood what I was talking about and wanted to help. And we went into session, like through breath work and you moving energy. And I think by the second experience I had with you, like over Zoom, I passed out over Zoom, over the computer. So I was like, I don't know what this woman is doing, but not only do I feel seen and heard, something is just not what I've ever experienced. So um, can you take us through that? What happens? 
Yeah, well, the first thing I'll say about um, COVID is we breathe together right. face to face. Right. So that's not really a good COVID activity, <laughs> given it is you know, transmitted through breath. So yeah, definitely strong boundaries on that. I got a lot of flack from people on that, but I have to live, you know, I have to make a living. So if I get sick, I'm down. Um, so yeah, strong boundaries are part of healing, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, it's fascinating to me, people go, this doesn't work on Zoom, how could it work on Zoom? It works on Zoom because there is no time and space in the energetic realm. Mm -hmm. I'm where you are. I'm connecting to you, that's what's important. So in my work, on Zoom or not on Zoom, I listen to your story. You tell me what's going on. You tell me what, what, the, what the you know presenting problem is. I listen mm -hmm. and then I ask questions. And I feel like I'm sort of one of those hound dogs. Like, let me have the smelly sock and I'll find who the owner is. <laughs> <laughs> How old they are, what they're wearing. What they did last night, you're literally MacGyver and sleuth of all the sleuths. It's funny. It's part of the training of being a shaman is to track. It's called tracking. Mm -hmm. And so when we do that breath work, we start to, we start to um, build rapport. We start to sync together. And then I can just kind of lean into your energy field that has all the information of who you are and what you've done. And the parts that are relevant will just start popping to me. I'll just start seeing them. They're not necessarily going to pop to you because your intellect has gone, been there, done that, we're done, we're moving on. You know, and we repress a ton of what happens to us because it's not relevant. We have to move on. We have to live our lives. Mm -hmm. But then it's still down there rumbling in what we call shadow. It's still unresolved. And it's because it's unresolved, if someone comes along that can see that, that young version of yourself, they're like, hey, I'm down here, I'm down here. So I, I just show up and I'll get these young versions of people just going, five, I'm five, I'm five, and this is what happened. They don't necessarily tell me the whole story. They'll tell me cues, they'll give me cues. And I've found over the years, I used to tell people like the whole story and then, and then maybe you know, more often than not I was right, but then sometimes I wasn't right and then we'd have to get into an argument about whether it was right or wrong and it would diffuse the whole thing. So I finally just started going, I'm just gonna take you to the event and I'm gonna hold that space and we're gonna hover, you know, we, I regress you back to that age and we're gonna hover over that little part of you and see if that part comes through. Mm. And what happens if, if I say that when we're doing breath, that part that's in your, your unconscious, your subconscious, in your soul, but isn't conscious conscious, starts to become accessible to you. If we hadn't done the breath work and run energy, the running energy part is really an important part, and we can talk about that. But if we hadn't done all that, then it would just be, remember when you were five? And you go, I don't remember when I was five. But when we start doing the breath work and running the energy work, we can go and go back in time to that five-year-old self and hover over her. And then she, because she's been waiting so long to tell her story, she just unearths it. She just comes through with all her feelings. She's stuck down there, stuck in time at that age, wanting to be seen and heard and wanting to process her thing. But somebody wasn't able to, you know, you weren't able to process it at five, let's say. So you just had to do what you had to do to move on. And she's stuck. She's frozen in time. Yeah. And it's interesting, even you saying that right now, it sort of just brings up, you know, recent experiences I've had 
in relating to other people and I feel they're stuck five-year-old or six-year-old and I trigger that in them or whatever, you know, it's triggered and all of a sudden they become defensive or angry or just show up frantic in a way. And it's really not about me at all. It's that frozen stuck energy that's showing up saying like, see me, like, listen to me, hear me. And I think so many of us live in these frozen states and then the reaction, the trigger, the behaviors that are sort of outlandish or explosive are from that stuck energy in those ages. Absolutely. That's that's what shadow is. Mm-hmm. Shadow is the subconscious and the unconscious part of our, our mind, part of our psyche, part of our soul. Those are sort of all synonymous words. Um, the part that is that we're not aware of, the part that we have stuffed because it's inconvenient, <laughs> because it doesn't work, because it sabotages us. However, if it's not worked with, it's like a jack-in-the-box. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before it gets triggered. And if you get triggered, it means you go from zero to 100 on emotional scale. Your adrenaline kicks in. You're like, ah! and you know something's going on, but you don't know what it is. And that just tells you there's some unresolved, unconscious or subconscious piece there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean you know that person that you're talking to is dangerous. It means... Something in your unconscious or your subconscious has been triggered. Right. For me, that's always a like, hallelujah, another piece to work. Because the more you work your triggers, the less minefields there are, you know, the less you're going to get thrown off kilter and, and you know, be, be thrown out. Sense. Yeah, but yeah. I think the thing with triggers is that because there's so much of this frozen energy or these pieces of us that are fragmented or dissociated that so often we live in this numb phase of like something's uncomfortable so we're going to drink it away or we're going to run it away or we're going to sex it away or we're going to date it away or netflix it away and so the triggers they just become almost muted like so they pop up but like we know how to like put them back really easily or and i think that they get bigger but you know in my whole experience like I was a runner, I was constantly something made me uncomfortable, so I would just like, dash out, and I never, I never knew what it was until I started unearthing. Because at some point, I was so frozen, everything in my life was so stuck, nothing was working, and I had like the higher consciousness, or I believe you know God planted in me, like okay, it's time, like we're ready, and I started looking under the hood and like dusting out, you know, what you call the empty motel. That what happens when a motel gets abandoned, like the cockroaches, they crawl in. So when I came to you, I was just chock full of fucking cockroaches, <laughs> which gave you like lots of, lots of exciting work. Um, but, you know, I think when I talk about healing and I, I preface it of saying like, I had no idea that it was going to be, I think it's life work in a lot of ways. Not to say like, you're always broken, you need to fix whatever, but like, like you said, a trigger pops up and there's something else you can learn about yourself um, instead of suppress it. But for me, really focusing the last two and a half years of my life in a way of like almost being in this like vortex tunnel of like putting myself back together again without ever knowing prior that there was anything wrong because looked looked dandy and like happy and happy enough and successful enough and from a really nice place so when people show up on your doorstep now that I mean zoom also she works for zoom um what's going on with them? Yeah, like they are, because uh, also, you know, I could ask you, like, how do you know you have trauma? But like, both questions. So do people know they have trauma or is it just something is, is disintegrated or because I think trauma is such a tricky word. I've had these conversations a lot of like, you know, if you don't know at five that that's bad, you know, you just stuff it down and you get frozen in that space and 
your memory forgets it because it's protecting you. So people come to you when they're feeling disintegrated or something's blocked. So um, I'm going to back it up into a less personal space just for a minute to okay. talk about hypervigilance Great. because this is, this is what we normalize. Mm. So that five-year-old does know something's wrong, but they don't have any resources. So they stuff the memory and try and get on with things. Mm. But because they have not dealt with it, two things happen. One, they become hypervigilant. They start to be overly aware of their environment, which runs the, which is the secondary thing, which runs this just chronic anxiety. And the chronic anxiety is what drives all the addictions, what drives the running, which drives the sex, which drives the food intake, which drives something to quell the anxiety, make it stop, make it stop, make it stop. And we don't go, what happened to my five-year-old? We go, how can I make this anxiety go away? So people come to my door going, how can I make this anxiety go away? Or I can't concentrate. Or I have this, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a symptom. It's way, way, way up above the five-year-old. And so I ask questions like, where does it, where does it start? When does it happen? What, you know, what do you, where do you, what's your history of it? How, how long ago did it first start happening? And we start to go into what was going on in your life when that happened? And all this is just talk mm -hmm. and then what happens is they get triggered okay and then you're like There's the that's where we are that's that's our portal in because once they get triggered now we're in it mm -hmm. now we're in the thing that their subconscious is going here it is again here it is again and they're not very happy about being triggered but they are because they came to heal right. and so the way I see it is that triggers a portal in and so that's when I switch from talking to getting on the table and then we start running energy and we start breath, doing breath work. And that's when I can start to track into your subconscious. That's when you're more likely to let me in because we've opened up that, that doorway into the subconscious. Before that, the person's going to fight me. They're going to go, no, I'm fine. I'm good. Everything's great. I've had people come in and tell me that. I'm like, why are you I here then? You. I still fight you. I, you do? Well, no, I resist getting on the table. Mm -hmm. And like, I'll smoke toad venom and like go to the ether. <laughs> but like, to get on the table, it's like, fuck. <laughs> and I'm like, I know. And then you're talking to me about like the, the fire and the attachment. And then I'm in the crib. And then like everything blows up. And then... Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, an incredible space to be in. It's incredible for you to be able to go that way. But, you know, I think also it takes a lot of courage then to show up and it be does. willing to, to go there, you know, and also like incredible strength for you to hold people in that, because I know that the stories you hear are just, and the stories that you've lived are, are painful, really painful. Yeah, it, and, and this is the trickiest part is it takes trust. Mm. And a lot of trauma destroys trust. Right. And so I have to sync with that person and go as, as slowly as they want to go. And there's often this gatekeeper that's like, mm, you're not fucking getting in. Mm. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going anywhere you don't want me to go. And I'll establish trust with the person until they go, okay, all right, maybe you, maybe you can come in. Yeah. And sometimes when I find their five-year-old or whatever it is, at first they won't recognize it. At first they won't, they won't, they'll go, I, they'll still go into their intellect and they'll go, I don't remember anything happened at five because they're still in defense. Yeah. 
And what the breath does is it, it gets them into a, what's called a theta state. It gets them into a slightly altered trance state where they can open up into their subconscious, where they can remember their stuff. It's not just me saying this happened to you. It's me opening up that space so we can journey into it. So we can go back to five and we can go, here's five. What do we need to do about five? And what's cool about it is that five-year-old had no resources. But I'm going back to five, and I'm taking your adult self back to five, and that adult, that five-year-old now has two adults that care mm -hmm. and are seeing her and are holding her and are letting her cry and yell and scream and whatever she needs to do, say her words. Mm -hmm. So there is a healing. It's, it's, also, it's sort of retro, you know, going back in time. Like we're going back and helping that child, you know, deal with whatever, however it got frozen, unfreezing it so that it can, so there's two ways to talk about freeze, unfreezing it from time, but then another way of talking about freeze is the neurological freeze that we go into, which is actually something biological where your body goes into paralysis as a stress response. Right. And they often go hand in hand, you went into freeze, five-year-old stayed stuck in it, the rest of you moved on, and the rest of you goes in and out of freeze. Every time another, your brain rewires and goes, oh. So the other thing that I did in, after, I, after I studied um, uh, physics is I went on to graduate school and studied neuroscience. I went to a graduate program, PhD program, studied how the brain works, how the nervous system works, studying anxiety and depression, studying learning and memory. So all that stuff actually feeds into the shamanic work that I do. So, so if you look at the stress response, your brain actually starts to rewire itself for going, okay, we might be having to deal with these things pretty regularly. We're going to have to have a, you know, a system for this. And if it's something that's bigger than you, when you're a child, just about everything's bigger than you, you can't really outrun it. And you can't really fight it. And the you know, fight, flight, and the last one is freeze. So you're going to have to freeze, and freeze is the last choice because you're going to have to endure it. And the only way you can endure it is by leaving your body and watching it from a, from a witness perspective. Which is dissociation. Which is dissociation. Yeah. I mean, everything that you say, um, it rings so true for my story, and I think that's, it's almost painful to, to listen because... You know, as I showed up in this world and went through my life for 30 years, like, I thought I was fine. Like, but I didn't know that I had anxiety. And yet I was hypervigilant about everything. I knew everything going around me. My anxiety manifested in the need to control everything. And, you know, whether it was how I worked out, how I ate, how I moved, how I related to people, how I dated, how I dressed. Like, everything in this also just, like, rooted in this deep self-hate and, like, I didn't know you were supposed to love yourself. What does that even mean? You know, we're not taught those things. And also, like, the pattern, it so often is passed down. You know, like, the sugar addiction. Well, like, it's cool. My mom loves to bake. Like, you know, no. <laughs> we're just feeding ourselves sugar all the time. Where does that come from? Or the anxiety around scarcity mindset or food at home or um, hypervigilance around work and anxiety and not sleeping. Like, all of these things that are were things that became normalized. Like, I just thought it was normal. Children don't know what's not normal or normal. Yeah. Yeah, and so I was, I was thinking about recently, it's in sort of a strange way because, you know, I'm very um, committed to my practices now, whether it's energetics, like cleaning and clearing, and I learned through you and now have my own interpretations or meditation, journaling, all the things. 
And in your work, as you said, Pachamama or the underworld takes it and recycles it. And I call it, you know, the pain becomes love. And I know in your tradition, Munai is the word for love and negative energy is called hucha, if you're curious. And um, so often now, like, I'll just lay on the floor and allow, you know, myself to let out, to like release this hucha and like bring it up to Munai and create more love. But I've become very um, connected to the floor. Like find myself <laughs> sleeping on the floor. <laughs> and like, because I, at first I was like, you know, I like to be close to mother earth. And it was like after a recent mushroom journey and, you know, on the floor. And then as I sat with that, I was like, you know, I used to sleep on my parents' floor growing up, starting at like age six. And cause I was scared to sleep in my own room at night. I was scared to be alone. And then it took me in this thought of like, why would a six year old be scared at night to sleep? you know, alone or why, you know, I wanted to be near my parents on the floor. And, um, it was because I had a very significant trauma sleeping out, you know, at someone else's home when I was six, but it just took me into this wonder and awe of like, how do you not like question if your child all of a sudden can't sleep? I was up as a six-year-old for decades, never sleeping, roaming the halls at night. Like, because if I didn't go to sleep, I was okay. Like, no one could hurt me if I was awake. Like, I would stand my ground. Um, and, like, thankfully, I didn't experience trauma in my own home. But, like, outside of the home, I brought it back into the home. And I sort of wanted to just hold my six-year-old in that space of she was so afraid. And I lived my life for 30 years so afraid without knowing why. And even when you said in your own experience, like, you know, your memory came up or like maybe of this room or you, it was only recently that you realized as a four-year-old that you were attacked almost by your grandmother. You're like really embodying that memory. And for me too, of like, it would come up, the memory, but it was like, he wouldn't hurt me. How, why would he hurt, you know? Because you don't want to believe it, but you are frozen in that state. And I think so much of the work you do and what you were just explaining, it brought me to this word of like reparenting. So when people come to your table, and when I was on your table and you're talking to my six-year-old, like you're holding me in that space so that I feel safe with another adult as an adult, but also as a six-year-old that just needs to be held. Mm -hmm. So I assume you do a lot of holding like in that way. Yeah, it's interesting because um, um, in therapy, you can't touch your, your client. Um, in, in healing, I don't necessarily, you know, go around and hug people, but, but I think sometimes a hug is necessary because it resets the nervous system. Mm -hmm. What, what, what the child is looking for is soothing. And this comes to your attachment stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, we can, we can get into it more specifically later, but if you have not been held and soothed as a young baby, um, and as a young kid, um, you don't have any reference point for being soothed. You have to so somehow learn how to self-soothe. Mm -hmm. And that's where the sugar comes in. That's where the addictions come in. That co that's where we start. Because what happens when you eat sugar? You feel good for a minute, right? right? There's all these things that, especially, and that's like kids are self-medicating with sugar. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have someone to help you reset your nervous system, and I think that's what 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 you know, going to your parent for a hug when you feel when you fall down is all about, is they hold you and you calm down, and your nervous system goes, okay, this is this is this is a one-time thing. This isn't you know we don't have to reprogram ourselves for like this is what's going to happen. But the other thing about it with parents is, parents don't necessarily recognize that their child is in trauma. 
they just think they have a difficult child and they are dealing with their own internal resistance to the difficulty of that child. God, I can't sit down without that kid doing this or God, I can't, they, they, you know, they start to have resistance to the child as opposed to recognizing that there's something going on with this kid that need, they need help. And I think most parents aren't, aren't, um, aren't savvy enough to recognize trauma in their kids. I, my mom wasn't. I know my mom knows, knew something was wrong because I remember at, and when I was seven years old, she was like, she took me to a psychologist, which was a complete disaster. And she also got me a kitty cat. And the kitty cat was actually how I soothed. Like I found that that's how I have such, you know, like, Pets are a very big part of my life because they're unconditional lovers. They're, you know, they don't they don't go into like, oh, you're such a burden. Oh, you're emotionally dysregulated. Oh, I can't stand you, right? Which is what all the people did in my early life, right? So, you know, they just bark at the UPS man. Yeah, that's you know that's doable. Right. We can we can get through that. Um, but I think it, it's true. Like parents don't necessarily recognize we're in trauma, and we don't get that. We don't know that we're in trauma because we're just surviving it. And so there's a secondary sort of a secondary sort of traumatic thing that happens is the parents start to react to the dysfunction of the child mm -hmm. and then um, push the child away, don't want to deal with the child, negate the child, criticize the child, lots of different things that they'll do, ignore the child, tell the child they're all right, you're fine, you're good, you're you know, good to go. Um, tell you're them too much. On the other one, it was like, well, yeah. you're too much. But that, you know, that's the, that's the whole critical side. You're too much, um, you're too emotional. There's a reason I'm too emotional. My emotional system is dysregulated because I had trauma, but you don't know how to say that. You're like, I'm just getting triggered all the time. Yeah. And it's almost not the parents' fault because they don't know any better. Yeah. And they had probably had similar trauma. You know, it's like this cycle that keeps going. It can I, be. You know, everything you say, I'm mean, just thinking about younger version of Olivia who just needed love mm -hmm. and was so dysregulated, was yeah. so hypervigilant, was so anxious and afraid and... Um, emotional and often told she was too much or that was how I was responded to or reacted to and I just needed the enter the attention I just needed the love I just needed the soothing and so like you said I ended up finding other ways to self-soothe which were often self-sabotage um, especially as I got older and then the teen years and you sort of become surrounded by all of these things that you're not prepared for. Yes. And they're things that dissociate you even further. So then the trauma just continues and probably gets darker and deeper. Um, to the extent that, like, I I thought this was funny. It's not funny at all. I used to say, well, if I didn't feel it, it didn't happen. And I was talking about workout classes in New York City when I was, you know, in my late 20s because I was so dissociated from my body. You know, I could run a half marathon box with a trainer for 90 minutes, take a hot yoga class, not feel any of it, like just trained as a machine. So I would go to some class and it was like people like jumping around and I was like this little girl, but I could like fuck shit up. So if I didn't feel it, it didn't happen. But even the fact that that was in my mind space is scary. Even to speak that and then to then uncover like pretty intense sexual assault for 30 years. It's like, fuck, I was, I just wasn't there. I found a way because I had to, to correct myself at a very young age, to just leave my body, to go to another space. Yeah. 
That's dissociation. That's freeze and dissociation. Yeah. And that, it's unfortunate. I think it happens to girls in particular. Boys too. Boys get molested also, yeah. very, very much so. Um, but girls tend to be um, sought after for sex more than guys do. Boys do. Boys tend to be more of the seeker, and, the, and girls seem girls. Girls have to choose who they're going to let in and who they're not because they're going to make the babies. So there's a biological thing that's going out there. So there's a lot more attention on girls. Um, to get laid. And so if you have trauma, if you have stress, you're like, mm, that's too much information. It's too much. It's too much to have all these people hitting on me. And, and you can go into just like freeze and like, I don't know how to deal with this and let things happen that you don't want to let happen. I'm not saying that's the rapes. I'm not, that's different than rapes, but that is, that's sort of that date rape thing of like, like not the um, the inability to even say no. It's like yeah, you can't give consent. Too, you know, right? And I think it's like just even recently this past weekend, because now I'm coming from a lens that I'm coming from where I'm integrated and I'm here and I don't want to dissociate. So like I'll have half a glass of wine maybe, but I don't feel the need. And I go to a bar and I'm just a, like a fly on the wall and watching like oh men they'll buy you all the drinks. You know, they don't, they want you to drink. There's like a lubrication of all. And I don't want to like point fingers, but it's just this culture that we've become so accustomed to where, you know, women are sought after in a lot of ways. And there's this, you know, flirtatious thing that happens, but I don't know how much innocence is attached to it, depending on the circumstance, but it just makes me feel sad for younger me who um, played a part in it, played a part in it. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the tricky part for young girls who've had trauma is they don't know that they they want connection, they want soothing, they want a, to someone to adore them, someone to love them. And so if a guy pays attention to them, they're like, oh, okay, cool, he likes me. And that's not necessarily true. He might like you for a minute, but that's not necessarily what his agenda is. And so you end up having these these cons- sort of consensual relationships that you d- that aren't really what you wanted and they start to sell- affect your self-esteem you start to feel like trash you start to feel like you know nobody likes you for who you are it's just all that kind of stuff and the, and what's the unconscious thing for i think young women is our culture is so focused on sex and sex selling things that as young women we tend to dress provocatively and that just fires the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. It just keeps the whole thing going. And, and it's never a woman's fault that, that those things happen. But there's also an awareness that I would say young women need to have of like. Right. How are you presenting what, yourself to the world? Yeah. Because whatever you're presenting is being reflected back. Right. If you leave with your sexuality, guess what people are going to be interested in? Right. Your sexuality. And that's something I think I needed to learn, too, of like embracing myself as a woman and owning my sexuality in a way that like was never mine and so like taking it back but then like realizing that I don't need to or want to lead with that because if I lead with that that's what's going to you know meet me and um I think it undervalues like our prowess as women like our power and it really breaks down our boundaries and I think our self-worth at some point and I don't not to say that like not embracing your beauty or um, honoring yourself as this goddess, like, you know, as all women are and all humans are, but to really know your intention behind what you're doing. Like if it's dressing a certain way to get the attention that you're lacking, then that's coming from a place of need instead of just like knowing who you are. Exactly. Which is 
uh, like I said too, like watching a fly on the wall now from this different space of experiencing this, you know, I just want to hold these girls and I want to, I feel very, um, kin to, you don't need to do that, baby girl. Like you're beautiful. You don't need to do that. And on the other side of that, hearing conversations with men leading with like, this is what I do. This is what I have. This is how much money I make. I'll take you on my boat, you know, like cool it like killer. Like if that's how you're presenting yourself too, then you're going to attract a woman who just wants you for that. Mm-hmm. So it's really like, how are we showing up? And, yeah. um, and how are we so detached from our hearts that we're just leading with this ego, this darkness, this shadow side that feels inadequate? Because we're all in trauma. Right. <laughs> so, so many people are. I mean, it's really, it's really uncanny. I mean, I mean, I, a good friend of mine is a social worker, and um, I worked with her at one point, and she said, everyone experiences trauma. Mm-hmm. It's just whether you have processed it or not. And it's it's all. And if you haven't processed it, then you're going to be stuck with some of these these deep wounds. Mm-hmm. If you have processed it in real time, if you had parents that were like, "Let me hold you, little Susie. I got you. You're okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like pick you up. I got you," and soothe that ner- nervous system back down, then that kid gets back on their feet and gets on their bike and just you know pedals off. Right. But um, if there's no one to and, and you know and that's that that's you know again we can we can talk about attachment, but. That's one of the other things that can happen is if you have a parent who's not able to attach well, who can't connect with you well, and it's your primary source of connection, you're going to have that experience of not being soothed, of not having your trauma, you know, soothed and, and re, you know, and your nervous system reset. Yeah. And so you're going to go around with a frazzled nervous system forever. And I think that's like what the armor starts building and gets lacquered on and layered on. And I, again, talking to like young, young Olivia, I I think I felt lonely my whole life and how that showed up was just so strong and so fierce and so tough. And from an external point of view, but it was like just deep isolation inside, um, never feeling understood, always feeling like an outsider, but I played the role well because, like, I had a lot of friends, but, like, I didn't really let anybody in. You know, really feeling alone in this traumatic state, traumatized state, without without knowing why and without any real, like, conscious memory of why. Um, and as you mentioned, attachment, and I just keep thinking of, like, if you're sued by a parent or you're held, like... Um, as you mentioned, like not chakras, but in your school of work called nyawis, like the attachments are through your belly or through the umbilical cord or through the gut. When you say frozen in this traumatic state or traumatized state, the one thing that came to my mind is like, it frozes, it freezes in you. So like that deeply affects your digestive system. It, di- it, it affects the way that your body functions. If you have these frozen parts of you that sort of get stuck. And I think, I don't know, but I would assume when people come to you, their bodies are dysregulated. Mm-hmm. So often, you know. Yeah, I mean, the primary thing that's this dysregulated is their nervous system, and the nervous system runs everything else, right? So, what happens when you have when you have repeated trauma is you become hypervigilant, and so there's this little part of your brain in the front of it called the amygdala that anticipates danger. It doesn't even it it doesn't even danger hasn't even happened yet. It's like it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And the more trauma you've had, the more hypervigilant it becomes. And it feeds back to this part of your brain called the hippocampus, which is all about learning and memory. And the hippocampus reaches over there and says, hypothalamus, drop some stress response into the body. Let's get going. Let's, we need to fight or flight. We need some adrenaline in the system. We need to be ready for anything. And if you can't fight, and if you can't flight, 
that adrenaline freezes in your muscles. It freezes the whole thing down and you're in a state of paralysis and you can't do anything about it. And so the more drama you have, the more you go into freeze. And if you're in freeze, you can't, all you can do is sort of watch from the outside as what's going down goes down. Mm, yeah. And that, so everything starts to become dysregulated. Your, the, your moods start to, to, to become dysregulated. You have depression because you feel helpless. You can't, you don't. Here's one of the things, the self-esteem piece and the self-loathing piece come from freeze, mm. I think. They come from not being able to champion yourself. They come from not being able to say, no, back off. This isn't okay with me. I'm setting boundaries. Because if you can't do that because you're afraid you're gonna go into freeze or because you go into freeze, nobody knows your no. And then you, you keep like throwing yourself under the bus. Because yeah. you can't stand up for yourself. Yeah. 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 I think that's like you become the ultimate people pleaser. And I, you see it all the time, just common every day. Like, you know, people just say yes when it's like, why are you saying yes and when you don't mean yes? And that would make sense then that you sort of lose that faith in self if you're if you're constantly saying yes when you mean no. Yeah, and not even lose faith in yourself, you start to hate yourself. Like, I don't have the strength to say a, sim- a single word. I can't just stand up for myself. How good of a human being am I if I can't even stand up for myself? And then you go into codependency, I'm gonna need somebody that can protect me. And then you got this whole codependency kind of thing going on. And you hate yourself because you have to rely on someone. And there's, you hate them because you're relying on them. them. Yeah. yeah, and there's this whole, this whole kind of thing that self-loathing, low self-esteem that come from from not being able to speak your truth, not being able to hold set your boundaries, not being able to be authentic and respectful of your own self. And when you can't respect yourself, it's easier just to let it happen. Then you start to hate yourself. And let it happen and be like, whatever, it was no big deal. When like, it was a really big deal. Yeah. And you keep telling your nervous system it wasn't a big deal, so then it keeps happening and it's never a big deal. When I think about, you know, when I was running st- or owned studios in New York City and I, I really built something when I look at it now, like pretty wild, like no experience, made it up, you know, but it was impactful for me and I wanted to help others. But I didn't see myself in that space, in that light. I didn't see myself as the boss, even though it was like my, you know, my own investment from like stock I sold that my parents had bought me when I was four. Like it was really like so from the ground up. And because I didn't see myself in that, nobody else did. Mm-hmm. and yes. employees walked all over me stole from me you know it was just and I let it happen and each time it happened I think you know in my subconscious I was like fucking pathetic yep and it was just this sadness and I would let employee like I mean in a, in a lot of ways abuse me like verbally and in so many ways and it just kept me feeling worthless yeah. and then not dissimilar from like pretty um, borderline abusive relationships I chose mm-hmm. because if I didn't care about myself, then like, it didn't really matter, but like they would keep me safe and like, we would get married and have kids and like, that's <laughs> the answer. Um, and then the codependency thing. And I think when mm-hmm. I sort of met you before my last relationship, but when I entered into my last relationship, all of this stuff had been unearthed and there was like this dust cloud and I was swirling in it and like, using plant medicine, other modalities to really, um, that, you know, work with the amygdala and make you feel safe. So you remember these subconscious memories and we've spoken about plant medicine and MDMA and psilocybin and the use of these substances, which are profound and I think are going to heal, 
um, many if they're used properly and also quite dangerous if they're not. But when I showed up and I was in this dust cloud and I wanted love and I also was not fully integrated in the space of like I am, and I was still hoping for a man to come and save me. And so I called in a beautiful man, but you know, someone that there was a lot of codependency and enmeshment because I didn't know any better at that point. And because I didn't feel safe yet, I needed someone to make me feel safe. And I really wanted to be with a man who could provide that safety in some ways, which happened and whatever else. There's a lot of story with that. But in that story was also this pretty deep wounded attachment in me. And um, in our last session, when I was on your table, resistant to be on your table on Valentine's Day, ironically enough, showed up. Probably was wearing red. I don't know. Maybe pink. I think I smelled like red Gatorade. I was drinking a lot of red Gatorade. <laughs> oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's something weird going on in my gut. And you're like, you smell like cough syrup. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> I was like, I've been drinking a lot of powdered Gatorade. <laughs> but you smelled it on me like from some weird snake thing that you, whatever. Anyways, so I'm laying on the table. It's Valentine's Day. It had been a couple days after I'd run into my ex-boyfriend. Like, everything was, like, very fresh. And we had spoken before I had entered your home this time, but I really wanted to dive into attachment. Because it felt like in this part of my journey, you know, I had really worked through a lot of trauma, a lot of traumatic memories, and um, building healthier boundaries, and shedding a lot of things that I was carrying for my life. But... The attachment part was really important. Can you, can you tell me why? Because I think attachment is thrown around like in every sphere. But talk to me about attachment, how's it, how it shows up in your work. Attachment theory is a theory that comes out of psychology. And again, I'm not a psychologist, but I work in the trenches. So I see these things. I see all the things that the psychologists talk about. And I end up making my own theories. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> somebody already wrote a book about this. <laughs> like, <laughs> Better start reading again. Or not. You know, like I already figured this out. Like it's, it's, there's the same information is available to anyone who goes in there and just, you know, really keeps doing it and doing yeah. it and doing it. Um, but what happens, the way I first discovered it was I, I discovered that, um, um, that a lot of a lot of um, child a lot of trauma that you know someone comes in with whatever this 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 complaint is happens in childhood. That kid is in distress, and that kid needs to be held and nurtured. And so part of what I do is I track to whatever they brought in to that smelly sock, and I find the kid that owns it. But what I started to realize is it can go back even further than. Than, than a you know a five year old or a six year old, it can go back to infancy, mm. and that's what attachment theory is all about. Attachment theory is about if you didn't have a at least one parent that could reliably soothe you, take care of you, nurture you, um, you're going to go into a certain amount of distrust about the world because you're just you're you're in your mom's womb. Everything is completely provided for. Mm. And then you come out and you have to have that person show up now. You're not connected to them anymore. They have to come and show up and take care of you and hold you. And what's, what's sort of horrible about the 60s, um, which is a little before when you were a kid, is there were a whole bunch of books by this guy named Dr. Spock that was like, 
Don't pick up the child if it's crying. Just let it cry it out. Don't spoil the child. And there's a, there's a place where you're spoiling the child, but if a child is just in distress, why wouldn't you hold the kid? Why don't we just soothe the kid? And so what what they found and through research has happened is that um, kids who who weren't held and who haven't been nurtured, who haven't had reliable parenting, end up with what's called attachment um, um, issues or whatever, attachment um, problems. There's probably some other word for it, but, um, and they- they, They're fucked up. Yeah, they're they're screwed up. (laughs) But there's, there's so that so there's there's normal attachment um, where you you were attached to normally and you you grow up and and because you were attached to normally as a as an infant as a small child, you can attach to others in a in a healthy way. It's called a healthy attachment, and um, and so you will know when it's time to let your friend go, your partner go, and when it's time to hold on. You will not push them away unnecessarily. You will not hold on to them too much. Mm-hmm. When there's unhealthy attachment, it can go two ways. Um, it can go to what's called anxious attachment, where you're never going to let them go. And that comes with a lot of control and punitive sort of things, like I'm not going to let you go, I'm going to punish you if you go, and all that kind of stuff. Or there can be um, um, avoidant, where I'm not even going to get that close to you because you're going to leave me anyway. So I'm not going to connect and I'm just going to keep you out here in a safe little place where I like you. It's fun to hang out with you, but I'm not like you, not going to let you get to me because I know it's only a matter of time before you leave. And then there's the anxious avoidant person who, whose parents were inconsistently there. And so they're like, I love you, go away. I love you, go away. I love you, go away. Those people are really confusing. <laughs> I'm so confused. I'm so confused. <laughs> you loved me yesterday. You hate me today. Um, so what's great is people who are anxious attachers find avoidance. Mm. And they go on this run where the avoidant runs and the anxious person <laughs> runs after them. <laughs> and they have this whole weird relationship. And and so You're a witness of that for a long time. <laughs> I've seen this lot in lots of different ways. Um, yeah, so so this is this is the kind of thing that happens um, until we do the work, and it's it's workable. You can do the work of breaking all that down and seeing where it comes from, and you know reestablishing your way of connecting, finding healthy ways. Try to bring yourself to a healthy attachment, well, so but it I takes work. I wanted to get into the attachment because I, you know, I had left this relationship, but also like felt quite attached still to the story or the back and forth or the nonsense. And a lot of my previous relationship was like, you know, running and being chased or, you know, staying and waiting and all the nonsense, a lot of just fucked up attachment. Yeah. And it was going both ways with you because sometimes he would be gone and you would be like, what happened? What happened? Where is he? Where is he? And then he would be there and you're like, I'm out. I'm running. This isn't going to work for me. I'm running. So you, you might have that, that, <laughs> that anxious avoidant. Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, you got on the table and, um, you know, we, we were looking at why can't you let go? Because you were still holding on, and you didn't want to still hold on, um, and you'd had some altercation, you'd had some recent engagement, I think, and so um, sort of very confused. And I think when someone shows up, I miss you, I love you, and then you know, it just yeah, a lot of noise. So there's a lot of energy, a lot of emotional energy in that. And what you brought, that was your smelly sock. I'm still holding on. <laughs> I can't let go. Yeah. So we get you on the table, we start running energy. And what the energy does, and we haven't talked about this, is it reformats your soul. 
Your soul is an energy field. It's on the outside of your, of your being. And it, it has all the information of who you are and everything you've been through. It imprints all the things that you've ever been through, good and bad, imprint on your soul. So when we run the Sami, the energy through your soul or through your energy field, it pops all that stuff. Mm. While we're doing breath work, which opens up your subconscious so that you can start to experience what's in that sphere of information because you're just running in your, your little you know ego in your default mode network this is what my story is and this is who I am and these are my these are my personas and this is my nice neat little package of who I am but when you start to do the breath work and we start to run the energy all that stuff starts to pop and I lean into your energy field and I can start to read it I can start to see what's going on and so I will feed back and and, and it's not like I'm picking from a whole bunch of different things like what should I pick from because we started with the smelly sock the thing that we want that's related to the smelly sock is going to pop, mm -hmm. is going to come through because we already set our intention. That's what we want information on. Yeah. So we started in and we could, I could tell it went way, 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 way back. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I assumed, because I, from assume. my intellect, I was like, oh, well, I'm six or five or whatever. But you were like, nope. And this is the interesting thing about the work is the ego wants to control the narrative. The ego wants to say, this is what the story is. I already know the story. I've already explored the story. I know it inside and out. You know, how do I, how do I get more? How do I milk more out of that story? Mm -hmm. I know where we're going. We're going to that story. And I'm like, that's not actually where we're going. That's not who's popping through. What's popping through is somebody in a crib, mm -hmm. somebody really young. Yeah. And you're like, what? Like, yeah. And all of a sudden it came through to you, which is what happens is I just set the stage. And if it is a real thing, your body will respond and you'll be there. Yeah, if it's not a real thing, you'll be like, mm, not really feeling it. No, and I was in a crib. I was in my crib and I used to cry so hard. And I would cry so hard until I threw up because then someone would come get me. Because from my parents' era, it was like, you let the kid cry. And that's how they self soothe and then they go to sleep. As opposed to like Gabor Mate's work, who says now like you don't let the kid cry. That's not what you do. You go, you, you go get the kid. <laughs> um. Kid needs to be held. So I'm in the crib and I'm like I catch back into this phase and you energetically and you held me and you held me and I felt myself safe again. Like because you're working with subconscious energy to come back into the space of just feeling like so held, so safe, so seen um, to. I want to say reattach, but how does that then work? Like from that session, like taking it with you, like how is that? Re I guess you're rewriting the soul's knowing or. Well, it's happening on several levels. One, you're soothing the infant, which is what it needed in real time. Mm -hmm. So you're resetting the nervous system, mm -hmm. right? The nervous system is now going, oh, I don't have to be so hypervigilant. Somebody's coming. I'm not, I'm not, because when you're a little kid, they're like dogs. They don't know if you're ever coming home again, <laughs> right? Just, I'm in the bathroom, I'm in here, and I don't know if I'm hungry or my pants are wet or whatever, and I, are you ever going to come back? Um, and so you hold the kid and you go, I hear you, I see you, I got you. And the kid calms down because that kid is frozen in time, in fear, in trauma. So you let that kid thaw. And in so doing, the nervous system is starting to reset itself. The story is starting to be not so important. And then those grooves, I would say, in your soul start to not be so deep. It just starts to be one of the stories that happened. It's not what defines you. It defines you only until you let it go. So in that definition, I think that something I've 
I've worked through with you, but it still hovers for me. Um, you know, being this baby in this crib and something we've spoken about is um, this fear of abandonment of like someone leave, you know, the parent leaving and you're in there crying alone or whatever else. And you've taken me this place of like it's a primal fear. What happens if no one comes? And that takes me to, well, if no one comes, then you die. Right. Mm -hmm. So in my past relationships, I think it has shown up in this way of like this fear of abandonment of what happens. You become so attached to someone and then all of a sudden like they're out or you're out. So like you said, it's this avoidant of like, I'm not going to get too close so that I don't get hurt and so that yeah. they can't meet me. Yeah. So if I've always shown up as one foot in, one foot out, then like I can't get hurt. Right. Um, and you can't get into a relationship. Right. And like a true relationship. <laughs> yeah. But the irony, as you mentioned, is that if I'm showing up avoidant, then I'm going to call in someone anxious. So the more I lean out, the more he leans in. And mm -hmm. we're seesawing back and forth. And as you noted, like we both showed up in both parts, like we would shift. Mm -hmm. um, so like, how do you break that? Like just breaking that cycle, like granted the work that we've done, but is it just a constant reminder? Is it deeper than that of like continuing to do the work of like, this fear of abandonment or, cause I'm not sure like until I'm in the, my next relationship, how it will show up. I think I've become so much more integrated in my own life, body boundaries, like knowing, um, less living in fear or unworthy that I hope I don't show up that way going forward. But, you know, I think maybe it would be helpful for, for people to understand once they know, you know, their habit or their, the, where they're coming from, like, how do you break the pattern? You reset yourself. You have to find your inner worth that is okay mm -hmm. alone and together. You, and, and this is what psychedelics are really good for, is to help rewire the brain so it doesn't go trip into a primal fear when somebody leaves. So you can just go, I'm good. I've got the whole universe. I got Pachamama. Mm -hmm. I got my dog and my cat. I got you know my good friends. I got whatever it is. I'm going to make this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be okay with this. That person, it's going to hurt. It's going to be sad if that person doesn't come back. But I've got this. So interesting because I, you know, I didn't plan on going here. But with what you just said and going back to Pachamama and me sleeping on the floor. And, you know, in my most recent medicine journey, I went into deep, deep attachment wounds with my father. And in ayahuasca ceremonies that I've done a year ago, it was the second journey I did, it was just a year ago, I remember being born and how I saw, it was a journey really about unconditional love. And I didn't see my mom, but it came out of my mom, but the first thing that I saw was my dad just staring at me, like just in so much love. Mm -hmm. And I think that was me like remembering, you know, mm -hmm. my father's love because yeah. um, I love my dad so much and his focus growing up was providing for the family. So emotionally, he really was unavailable, but um, was available in the best way he could be as a father. An incredible father financially and sturdy and everything else, but emotionally wasn't there. Anyways, given that was my memory of him staring, I needed to feel his love from an unconditional place. And I felt that last year. Fast forward to my journey last week. Um, it was me going into this deep sadness of like, I'm your girl. I love you so much. Like, where were you? I needed you. This attachment to the masculine, mm -hmm. which I think was something I needed to work through so that I could understand my relationship, my most recent relationship. Cause that also took me into this deep love for, you know, someone I was with, but 
also, I think, this pretty faulty attachment, you know. And validation. I think we really want validation from our fathers. Okay. We really want validation from our fathers because they are, they're the worldly one, you know. And not that it's, it's completely like that anymore, but they, they are daddy, you know. Like, we want validation from daddy. We want daddy to think we're worthy. I want to go back to when I said, you, you know, psychedelics can help you, you find that. The real work is doing all the work, doing all the trigger work, doing all the work that you need to do to to um, not hate yourself, not loathe yourself, so that you can go, I got you, little girl, I got you. But the psychedelics are there to help rewire your brain when you've done all that work. Because you can do all that work and still have hypervigilance. Yeah. And what the psychedelics do is they help rewire the brain so now you're a whole system, now you're a whole being, now you can, you can put yourself back together. You can hold that space if daddy doesn't love you, if daddy doesn't value you, you can still go, I value me. Yeah. I know who I am. I know what I, you know. And I think that's who, like this word integration, I think it's speak, spoken about a lot, but that's really the work. It's yes. integrating what you take from these psychedelic assisted therapies or um, the, the energetics, whatever it is, and like integrating in your everyday life. Like I wake up every morning, I'm like, hey, babe, you look cute. Like I mean, I talk to myself constantly. I get in bed and I like, I love you and thank God and thank Pachamama and like really remember and I also catch myself constantly if there's any negativity or judgment for others like I always come back to myself and I think that's those are skills I've had to learn so that I can see the world through a clear lens so I can see people through a clear lens not from a wounded place and Mm -hmm. um I love that you mentioned you know the validation from the father you know because I finally honor like really fully honored that for my whole life I've just wanted my dad to see me and in my medicine journey, you know, I took it my, because I was feeling this just, I love you, dad. I love you so much. Like, I'm your girl. Because I also see him now with my baby niece, and it reminds me of, like, baby Olivia. And he loves her so much. And she's so funny. She calls him, my dad's name is Michael. Michael, she's, because she hears my mom call him Michael. Michael, when he walks in the house. So baby Kate, Michael, Michael, Michael. (laughs) So cute. But I went into this space and uh, I love him. I love you so much, Dad. I love you so much. And I texted him. I love you so much. And he's like, "Are you okay?" Because like, (laughs) and I'm like, "Yeah, I just was thinking about you, and I love you so much." And he's like, "You know, I'm always here for you." And I know that now. I know that now, and I also know that he always was, just not in the way I needed him to be. So it was almost this full circle moment of like, there's so much sadness there for me, and, um also reverence for him because he really put himself in whatever position he could to be the best he could. And truth be told, it felt really, really short for me emotionally. And I think the sadness was um, a lot of my relationships with men have been as a byproduct of, of needing to be seen by my dad. And the coolest part about that is that I had a conversation about this with my mom and my mom really heard me. Mm. And it was really like this, full circle moment of just humanity, you know, just, and just unconditional love, even if it wasn't available in the way that I needed it to be. Um, because there was a lot of missteps and left turns, you know, and trauma. But at the end of the day, it's like really knowing that not only did they have me, but I have me and I know you have. <laughs> so thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so to just, Yeah. I was going to just, you know, ask one more question further into the attachment thing. So back to this, like, 
really knowing who you are and what you have and not needing someone else to validate. Because I think a lot of issues come from relationships where the person needs to be needed or otherwise, and it creates really fucked up attachments. So what would the, I mean, I know you mentioned like really knowing and honoring yourself, but beyond that, like advice for someone who feels like they can't get it right. Is it, is it to go in or, you know? Yeah, it's to go in. It's, it, it, I mean, it sounds cliche, but it's about self-love. When you can accept yourself, warts and all. Right. then you can show up. Mm. And then it's about, I accept myself. Do you accept me? Like, mm. do you accept yourself enough to accept me? In all of our gore and blood, you know, without our masks yeah. on. If you need me to be some trophy, yeah. whatever, for you, so you feel better about yourself, this isn't going to work because mm. I'm not going to be able to do that for you. Yeah. Do you feel okay about yourself already? So you can just meet me as who I am mm-hmm. instead of who you need me to be so that you feel better about yourself. I love that. I think that you've been so um, honorable in reminding me that at, at, at points when I've been confused around decisions. It's like just accepting someone where they are because I think so often we fall in love with, with someone's potential. Yeah. And as opposed to just who they are as they are. We fantasize about what life could be. Yeah. So all in all, back to where we started, as this show is called Everything You Need Is Inside. What does that mean to you? It means just that. It means that's what you're unearthing. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Andean tradition, I think we've talked about this, you have an Inca seed. You have this place right in your solar plexus, right underneath your, your chest, that is your full potential, the full potential of who you are. And we would say it's your spirit, it's your divinity, it is like your intel chip, it's fully loaded Mm -hmm. with your individuality, with who you're gonna be. And it's about unearthing that, it's about getting all the trauma and wounding out of the way so that can express itself, so you can be that, so you can love that, Mm -hmm. knowing it's not gonna be you, I'm not gonna be Olivia Young, it's not gonna happen, I'm gonna be Christina Allen, and I'm gonna find my best way of, 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 Loving Christina Allen. So everything I have is inside and everything you have is inside. And the work is to chip away at all the delusion, at all the, you know, all the ways we, we um, shortchange ourselves, limit ourselves, all the unconscious things that, that programs that undermine uh, ourselves. And to, to come into that place of, okay, this is me. This is me. I'm going to do the best I can with what I got. I got, you know, I got this run on, on the planet. Who knows if we have more, if we've had more. You can argue either way. But in any event, you got this lifetime. We know that. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with it? You got to be you. And you got to get rid of all the things that trip you up. And the things that are tripping you up are in here. You have to stop putting them out there. You have to stop, you know, making them about those other people. Because mm-hmm. those other people are just doing their own thing, too. And they are not trying to trip you up, usually. And if they are, then they're a pain in the butt. Right. They're probably just themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So everything you have is inside. It's exa- It's a great tell. Yeah. I mean, tagline, you know, it's, it's a great, that. yeah. Thank you. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for all of your work, for um, continuing to show up as a light in this world and holding space for people that need it um, and being who you are because mm-hmm. I love you so much and I'm so grateful to 
to have met you in this in this realm. Yeah. So where can people find you now that I've everyone should find, I mean, no, because then you're gonna be busy, but you're busy. <laughs> where can people find you, Christina Allen? The easiest way is is um, my website, AustinShamanicCenter.com. Okay. Um, I'm not big on picking up the phone because I talk to people all day long. <laughs> so Do not call her. Don't call me. But you can email me. And um, um, I have an assistant who's very good at, at interfacing so that I can just do what I do best. Perfect. Yeah. Just being you. Yeah. Just I, I'm, I'm going into the deep end with you. I, I'm not a very good small talker. That's why I don't go to co you know cocktail parties. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go in the deep end like, when you were five, this happened. So... Don't, don't. I should probably stop going to cocktail parties <laughs> or random bars when that's the conversation and then people are like, I got to go. I'm like, okay, bye, I do too. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you. It's my honor. I'm so proud of you, all the work Thank you've you. done. Thank Absolutely. You.